Good morning, church. The scripture for the sermon this morning comes from Acts 17, verses 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of all this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thank you, Heidi, for reading. And uh, just before we jump in here to uh, spend some time in Acts chapter 16 through 18, just one note, you'll notice that's a lot of text we're going to be looking at, Acts 16 through 18. We're going to kind of be taking some bigger chunks as we finish out Acts here into the different missionary journeys of Paul. And so um, we're going to have different people reading some of the scripture as well. I do want to just point out one thing. First of all, uh, thanks to the tech team who are working hard back in the back to make everything work. And I thought at first Adam was just really trigger happy on changing the slides, but uh, realized that it was some short in the system. So you'll have to look over here. But uh, we have some pictures from yesterday. As you might know, um, we have, we've been doing Scent Summer. It's a partnership with Crew, and it's been focusing on the city and on the campus and on the community, and it kicked off this last Friday. And then, as well, people went down into the city yesterday to partner with Crew Inner City. And so uh, we're so excited just about thinking about how we can care about the city, how we can care about the campus, and how we can care about the community. And so uh, Callie Hill and Liz Sampson are leading crew at Elmhurst and COD, and they're leading us in this endeavor as Matt prayed already here this morning. And so uh, if you would like to know more information about this, how you can participate in the next group that's starting on June 2nd, thinking about the campus, you can talk to Callie or Liz. Liz is playing the guitar here this morning. Callie, where are you at? I don't know where she's seated. She's downtown today. That's right. So she's downtown. You can't talk to her, but you can talk to Liz after the service. Also just excited to see how the Lord worked in the men's and women's Bible study. The women's Bible study had their final gathering on um, Wednesday, no Tuesday night, and 34 women came, and it was just such an encouraging time, I know. And so we're looking forward already to the fall, and I'm looking forward to preaching to people that look like 
kind of a gathered group of people rather than so spread out and in two different services. And so thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for gathering in this place. And let's take some time. Let me pray. And then we're going to spend some time in God's word. Father, thank you for your word, which is so clear. It was clear when Paul preached it it, to philosophers, when he walked the streets of Athens, when he talked with people in the ancient world. You worked powerfully through your spirit to open eyes. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that same thing here this morning, that you would open our eyes, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us where, we're, where we need to be strengthened, especially as we think about the advance of the gospel. Oh, Father, we are so easily filled with fear. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use these chapters to encourage us as we spend time in your word here this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nick Ashford came to New York City in 1962 from Michigan to be on Broadway. But instead he wound up homeless and on the streets. Valerie Simpson met Nick at the White Rock Baptist Church in Harlem when she was singing in the choir. And as he stood in the back of the room, he came to the church that morning just to have a hot meal. You know, Valerie found out that Nick sometimes sang and she convinced him to join her gospel group. He began to write lyrics for her melodies. They had some interest from Motown, but they were still looking for their breakout song. The words of their hit came in an unusual way. Came to Nick as he was on a walk, as he looked up at the skyscrapers up above him. He was anxious. He was wondering if he was going to even be able to stay in the city. When he looked up, the buildings looked like mountains. And he wrote the song, the lyrics that day, that Marvin Gaye would record that Diana Ross would go on to record and be a number one hit. He wrote, Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. What we probably don't know is the you there, it was referring to success in his mind. He wanted to stay. He didn't know if he was going to stay. This all just felt like overwhelming odds and overwhelming mountains. And so, ain't no mountain high enough It's going to keep me from getting to success. Now, taken as the song was originally intended, I really think it fits our passage well here in Acts 16 through 18, where we'll see that nothing will stand in the way of the successful work of the gospel in people's hearts. There there truly ain't no mountain high enough to keep God's work from getting into the hearts of people who need him. And so here's how I'd summarize the point of these two chapters, speaking very broadly. The gospel is unstoppable, even in prosperous, intellectually influential, and wicked cities. The gospel is unstoppable, even in prosperous, intellectually influential, and wicked cities. So as we follow the Apostle Paul here and his traveling companions, and we think about the mountains that the gospel is facing in prosperity, the mountains of the gospel is facing with kind of the intellectualism of the day and the wickedness. Despite these things, God is still at work. So that's how we'll kind of structure our time. So let's look first here at this morning. The prosperity of our age shouldn't numb us to the, the need people have for Jesus. 
This prosperity of our age shouldn't numb us to the true need that people have for Jesus. You know, one of the greatest dangers that of prosperity and a booming economy is that it masks what our greatest needs are. It, it numbs us, almost like Novocaine. You know, a, uh, adult children have kind of had this thought through the years at Christmas, Father's Day, when they think about buying a gift for their dad, what do you get a person who has everything? You know, that really, sh- it, should, it should haunt us outwardly because what do you have if you have everything outwardly yet possess nothing inwardly or of eternal value. And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul comes to Philippi. It's a town, it's the first city that really he spent time that we know of uh, in, in Europe as he's entered into the continent of Europe. It's a town with a booming economy because of the gold mines nearby and the special status as an uh, Augustan colony, which made its st- uh, status as a city uh, illegal as just the same as in Italy, an Italian city. And so if you were from this city, you had special privileges as a, as a Roman. And so look at verse 13 at what Paul does after he enters the town. And on the Sabbath, this is chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia here at this place of prayer, probably scholars believe that there weren't enough men, there had to be 10 Jewish men in a city in order to have a synagogue, and there probably weren't enough men to have a synagogue, and so there was a place of prayer down by the river. Paul went looking for it. Lydia hears the gospel, she believes, and we find out that she was a businesswoman. She dealt in purple goods, and she was obviously wealthy because later she prevails on them to come and to stay at her house, something that would have been unheard of if somebody didn't have extensive means. But what's interesting in this account here is the why she believed. And and all throughout Acts, it's just peppered with these deep theological truths of what we learn about how God works in people. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So why did she pay attention? Why did she believe? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You know, when, when I was just out of college and uh, we were newly married, probably about 26 years ago, one of my dad's friends, who seemed positively old to me, who was probably younger than me now, but one of my dad's friends um, wanted to talk more about Jesus. I had talked to him a little bit. He had heard that I'd become a Christian, and he wanted to talk to me about Jesus. And he was climbing the ladder of success. And, and here I am, just this wet behind the ears, 22-year-old, uh, and he had some questions, and I had a choice to make. Am I going to be intimidated by this conversation of this man who's quickly climbing the ladder, or am I going to talk about the gospel? You know, I think in that way, it just kind of is a reminder that wealth and status, they're sadly insulating. It, wealth and status keep many people from hearing about Jesus because of all the success and all the money they have, people assume, well, they don't have any needs. They don't really need anything. Look at their life. Look at their house. Look at everything going well in their life and in their career and everything. And so what sadly can happen is wealth 
and status can be sadly insulating. So here's a question you might ask yourself. How does the fact that the Lord opens hearts to pay attention to the gospel, how does that fact, how does that encourage you to be bold regardless of who you're talking to? Regardless of what status they have, regardless of how much money they have, how does the fact that it's the Lord that opens hearts, how does that encourage you to be bold? But, you know, just to kind of skip ahead, it's, it's not just a businesswoman whose hearts opened in Philippi. Paul and Silas, they are beaten, they're thrown in jail because they healed a girl who was being exploited because she, was, she had a demon inside her. They, and the, and it's kind of one of these funny stories. It says, she followed them around every time they would go down to the river and she said, these men are servants of the great high God and you should, they're preaching the gospel, essentially. And she's yelling this every day after them. And this is kind of one of these great moments of wonderful honesty in the book of Acts. And Paul, being greatly annoyed, said to her. So why did he heal her? He was annoyed. And so it's just this moment of honesty. And yet, when that happened, the ones who were kind of her handlers in a sad, very sick way, all their hope of gain was gone. And so Paul and, ben, Paul and Silas, they get beaten, they get thrown in jail because they've done this thing. The jailer becomes a Christian after a miracle. His family become Christians. And so here they are, and they're, they're in Philippi. They're eventually released, and they go down the road 35 miles away to Thessalonica. And as they get to Thessalonica, look at chapter 17, verse 6. Here's kind of the summary of what people in the town were saying. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Their their reputation has preceded them. These men who turned the world upside down, they've come here. They're here. And so how have they turned the world upside down? Just by speaking the gospel, people believing, healing, doing good things, and yet the world is watching after these very basic truths are being explained and people are believing in place after place after place. But in verse 7, you'll see in chapter 17, they they continue to accuse them. And look at what they accuse them of. They say, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. You know, they're turning the world upside down because they don't worship what the world worships. They don't bow down to money and fame, and they don't acknowledge, they they acknowledge one who is more supreme than the Caesar. Jesus. He is the true king. And so maybe we might say this, kind of with all the talk of wanting to change the world in this generation, do you want to change the world? Look at how it's, and at least in the book of Acts, as we've seen it so far, you don't change the world by trying to change the world. You change the world by being a normal Christian where God has placed you And God begins to use you in unbelievable and extraordinary ways to turn the world upside down one person at a time. This was just a slave girl in Philippi, and yet everything breaks loose right there. And so here's Paul. The world's being turned upside down because of what they're preaching. They have to leave under the cover of darkness from Thessalonica, and they go to Berea. They go down the the road to Berea, and they begin to teach in a synagogue. Now look at chapter 17, verse 11. I told you we're going to go fast through these chapters, so we're cooking with gas now. Here it is, 1711. 
Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So remember, it's kind of, every time they're in a synagogue, it says they're proving that Jesus was the Christ. And so the people in Berea, they're not just taking Paul and Silas's word for it. They're examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are the case. Is this the case that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah? Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So they received the word of God with eagerness. They examined the scriptures to see if what Paul is saying is true. And many believe, even people of high standing, but they encounter trouble. And isn't it just a sad state that the people in Thessalonica can't just leave well enough alone? Paul and Silas are gone. They're turning the world upside down, but they're upset that they're turning the world upside down. So they chase them to Berea. And where people are receptive to the word, people in Thessalonica are now stirring up them in the crowds. And so they chase them down and they have to go on the run again. And so here's how the gospel enters into Europe. It does so under turmoil. It does so in power, even in very Roman, very prosperous economically areas. The gospel, we could say this, is it's not just for simple-minded people who are poor and who are longing for this opiate to take away their pain. The gospel permeates into every strata of society. Maybe we could kind of put it into modern-day terms. The gospel works on Wall Street just as much as it does in Mayberry. There's unique challenges in both, but God's work is powerful and he works by his spirit. And so the first thing we should see from these chapters is the prosperity of our age shouldn't numb us to the true need that people have for Jesus. Well, next here, they're traveling to Athens. And so let's see our second point. Intellectual pride that claims knowledge without God robs people of finding real answers. So intellectual pride that claims knowledge without God robs people of finding real answers. So here they are in Athens. They come. It's it's a beautiful city. The entrance that Paul would have walked in likely would have had uh, taken him past a temple with a hundred marble columns, gilded gold ceilings, The Parthenon would stand overlooking the city with greater glory than it has today, even in its ruined state. There were dozens of temples, and and Athens was full of statutes and um, great examples of architecture. It was this intellectual hub. It was an architectural hub. It was an intellectual hub for philosophers. Maybe it might feel like kind of going into an kind of Harvard, kind of where in Massachusetts or to Oxford or to Cambridge today, and kind of seeing the great hallowed halls. So look at verse 16, chapter 17, verse 16. When he enters the great city of Athens, it says this, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul walks down these streets, these streets of beauty, but as he looks, he's walking down these, these roads, as he's viewing all of these magnificent sites and buildings, he's troubled. Literally, it's his spirit was 
irritated, provoked, or it was irritated with grief. Seeing gods and goddesses everywhere. Grief that all of this learning, all of these philosophies weren't bringing them a step closer to Jesus. And so what's his response? His response is this in 1717. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day. He reasons. He, there, this is a place of reason and philosophy. And so he realizes that the gospel will go forward in power when God does miracles, but the gospel can hold its own even through careful reasoning, especially through careful reasoning, something that the Athenians would have valued. And so we shouldn't treat the gospel as something as if you just have to check your brain at the door. And it's, in fact, understanding wisdom from God, it actually enables us to delight more and to study and to understand all of the natural world all around us. And so Paul goes from the marketplace where he's preaching the resurrection, and he goes with the philosophers into the Areopagus. And in the Areopagus is where that had the place that had... Um, authority over religion, morality. This is where the cult worship of gods and Caesar is set apart in ancient Greece and Rome, but it wasn't just kind of this cultic worship that was taking place. It also affected their morals, their values, their civil, their ceremonial, their religious lives were all tied together in ancient Rome. It's very similar to Israel, except they believe in many gods. So to bring him, they bring Paul in to teach this new teaching. And look at verse 19. Here's what they say to him. Essentially, you know, the men who are turning the world upside down get invited to speak. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They love new ideas. They love new philosophies. And so they hear these strange things. They've never heard the resurrection. They've never heard this before. And so look at verse 22. And and this, Paul is identifying with him. He's not just kind of starting in a place they wouldn't understand. He goes right to something they wouldn't understand. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so he starts by just kind of saying, look, as I walked around your city, I noticed a lot of altars. There are a lot of statues. There are a lot of of worship going on. And one of those was an altar and it had to the inscription to an unknown God. It's a God that they might not yet know. And so he uses this, he kind of takes the opening. So since you have an altar to this God, let me tell you about the God that you don't know who's actually the God over everything. And that's where he kind of takes, his, uh, takes the opportunity to start giving, talking about the character of God. Look at verse 24. The God who made everything in the world and everything in it, creator, being Lord of heaven and earth, he's sovereign, he's Lord, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so what Paul's saying is essentially, look, everything you see isn't made by the gods and goddesses that you're ascribing it to. There is one God who gave structure and meaning and purpose and creation to the universe. 
And there's one God, and he doesn't have a temple here in Athens. He doesn't have a temple anywhere because he doesn't need offerings like you're bringing to your gods. He doesn't need anything because he made everything. And so the God who made everything, nothing's outside his control. And so as Paul is kind of reasoning, he's going on and saying, so it's the God who made everything and controls everything, he's actually nearer to you than you even realize because he's the one giving you life and breath and meaning and everything around you, even if you don't acknowledge it. But look at verse 29. This is where the logic of Paul turns, where he really brings the gospel to bear. He says, since God made everything, including us, we're his offspring. And since we're his offspring, since we come from him, he says, verse 29, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, since God created you, who are you as the created to think that you can create the creator and kind of have this gold image? Who are you to think that you can kind of have these images of gold or stone or wood God made you. He made us. He made us to know him, to worship him. And so Paul is pointing them to very, don't follow these empty gods. Follow the one true God, the one who knows everything, create everything, including you. Now here's the response. And so he's kind of, he started identifying with them. He brought truth of the who God is. And here's the truth that he tells them very plainly of what their response should be. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. And so what Paul is saying is, since there is this God that you come from that made you, you need to repent how you're living. To repent means to turn away from. It always means to turn away from sin, something, and to turn to the positive, towards God. And so turn away from the sin you're clinging to, turn away from the gods that are no gods at all, and turn now to the God who is God over everything. Because he, and here's what he says in verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So God has a day that is fixed. Now, what is the assurance that God has a day that he has fixed and that he will judge? The assurance is, look at this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so the resurrection, it provides assurance to those who hear the good news of Jesus that this was not just a sacrifice that was made in some temple. This sacrifice that Jesus made was made in the heavenly temple. This sacrifice that Jesus made to the Father on our behalf was accepted because he rose from the dead. And since he has risen from the dead, since he's alive, he will come again on a day that is fixed. It's as fixed as July 4th. It's as fixed as October 19th. It's as fixed as December 25th. There is a day that has a date on a calendar with a year that God knows and we don't. And it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 300 years from now. But on that day, there will be a need for those who have not repented, there will no longer be any time. For those who have not turned to Jesus, there will no longer be an opportunity to turn from sin and turn 
turn towards God. And so Paul is telling them, men of Athens, people of great learning, don't let your learning keep you from knowing this Savior. And sadly, in verse 32, some mocked the resurrection. They mocked it. You know, some people mock the resurrection. You know, if, if you're bored by the resurrection, in a sense, that's mocking the resurrection. If you think the resurrection isn't important, that's mocking the resurrection. If you think the resurrection is just something that might relate to somebody else or some religious thing, that's mocking the resurrection. And some did that, and maybe some very openly mocked it. True life, real life. But some wanted to hear more, and some believed. And so, where are you at here this morning? Are you kind of making for yourself an idol of your own making, your own life? Are you defining your life by self-actualization or self-care or any other kind of self-defined pursuit? Or are you seeking to find your true, way, true life in Christ alone? If Jesus rose from the dead, we can say this. And this, this message works in Athens and it works in the, right here this morning. If Jesus rose from the dead... Nothing else is as important as that because that is what gives us life eternal. He proves as the creator that he defines life and he can define your life here. And so let the resurrection define your life. And so here in Athens, the good news of Jesus holds its own even in the seat of intellectual ideas and power. And so intellectual pride that claims knowledge without God it robs people of finding real answers. The last thing I want us to see here this morning, and this will be very brief because we'll see this as we continue on through the book of Acts. Even in places overrun with wickedness, God is able to reveal those who are his. Even in places overrun with wickedness, God is able to reveal those who are his. Now, here's Paul, and he's left Athens he goes to Corinth, and Corinth is this great sea town. It's, there's an isthmus, which I can barely say, let alone per, spell, but it's, it's on kind of this small little land where, people, where sailors would bring uh, goods from one sea, and they would transport them over land to another section of the sea. It was the fastest way to do it. And so Corinth was a place where all of these sailors just hung out waiting for everything to be transported over the land. And so it was a place of debauchery. It was a place of great sin. It was probably the original sin city. And it's a city right here at a crossroads with all of these ideas, all of these people coming from all these places. And as Paul goes to Corinth, we, we learn that he begins to actually start to work as a tent maker, which was his craft that he had done before. And as he's tent making, he's also speaking in the synagogues. And he's preaching to the Jews. They again reject it. And he's continuing to preach to the Gentiles. But look at this in verse 18, 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city who are my people. So if you remember back in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, there's a, Paul has a vision by a man from Macedonia calling him, come over to Macedonia and help us. It's a call to leave the Asian continent and to come over to Europe. And here, at the end of this journey, 
There's another vision of the Lord telling, keep going, Paul. Do not be afraid. So if you notice here, he says, there's a, do not be silent. That's the command. For I am with you. There's a promise. No one will attack you or harm you. Another promise. For I have many people in this city who are my people. So don't be silent. No one's going to attack or harm you, for I have many people in this city. So the question we should ask when we read that is, so does that mean God has many people in this city who are going to protect Paul? Like as in, I've got many people, I've got many soldiers in this city, so don't worry about it, Paul. Or is he saying something else? I think in context, it's clear that what he's saying is, do not be silent, keep speaking, because I have many people who will believe in this message. There are many who are here in Corinth and it's a wicked place and you're going to wonder how in the world can the gospel ever go forward here, Paul, but don't worry. Don't, nothing's going to harm you here. No one's going to harm you and I've got many people here in this city. Now, I, I tell you, in my opinion, that is the most, personally speaking, that is the most encouraging verse on evangelism in the entire Bible. And it was the most encouraging when we lived in Turkey and we walked around a city of 15 million people, 99.999% of them had no knowledge of who Jesus was. And so what was my hope? Someone who didn't speak Turkish all that well and who couldn't communicate all that great and who was very young at the time. What's my hope? My hope is, God, you're going to work and you've got many people in this city. You've got people who can hear and believe. And so what does Paul do? He stays a year and a half, and he's preaching the gospel, and people presumably are coming to know who, who Jesus is. And so he sets up shop in the place that's known for its wickedness. Now, if you would have thought of a place like, where do you want to kind of set down roots? Where do you want to preach the gospel? Probably you'd want to be in Berea, where they're eagerly receiving the word every time, rather than Corinth, where, the res- where people are going to be outright mocking you or just kind of pursuing sin in any number of ways. And so what we remember here, and we saw in Philippi, God opens hearts to pay attention. And God knows the people in the city that belong to him. So Paul can keep on speaking. And so even in the midst of the greatest sinful city of the time, God was still at work. God isn't held back by wickedness. Paul might look around and wonder, how can anybody believe? He doesn't need to fear because God is at work. And so here's how we could conclude this morning. We all know people in our lives who seem to have no want and their wealth insulates them from their need. Or we know people who have such an intellectual wall that they've built that they scoff at Jesus and at the Bible as simple-minded or childish. And all of us probably know someone who's clearly pursuing sin and wickedness rather than God. But no matter what the case, or no matter who the person is, we could say there truly ain't no mountain high enough to keep God from getting to them. And so we can pray for them to that extent. We can be bold to that extent. The good news of Jesus is able to reach anyone. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for how you work in us and all of our lives. If we had the time to tell our personal stories, all of us had people who spoke to us about Jesus and maybe we had a high wall that was built 
of rejecting Jesus. Maybe we were children and we rejected him and we turned away for many years. Maybe we were in our university or we were in our workplace. And yet, Father, you placed us in places where people who knew you, who were Christians, were turning the world upside down by speaking to us personally. So we believed. Father, would you help us to be a congregation who delights in making Christ known? And we can do this knowing that it is your spirit at work, that you know who are yours, you have those names written in your book of life, you are the sovereign one, and we trust in you. Lord, would you help us to be bold as a result, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.